I'm going to start by asking you a question. You don't have to give me an answer to it. It might just be something that gets us thinking before we look at our passage of Scripture. And that is, why do you give? Why do we give as Christians? And um, we need to sort of ask ourselves that and step back every now and again. Why do we give? Let's look at our passage of Scripture together, which is um, on page 1162. 1162 in your Bibles. It's 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 7. This is what Paul says of the Thessalonian and Philippian church, known as the Macedonian churches, and he's writing not to them, he's writing about them, but he's writing to the Corinthian church, which excels in everything. It's got all the spiritual gifts, it's got all the things that it might need, but it doesn't do very well when it comes to giving. And this is what he says in verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches, that's the church of Thessalonica and Philippi. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. Note this in verse 4. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing. (laughs) Urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. They exceeded our expectations and gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, in the love that we have kindled in you, see to it that you also excel in this grace of giving. Well, Father God, we pray that this passage of Scripture will be rich in our hearts, that you would bring it home to our spirits and inform us, Lord, of your heart and your will on this important subject. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't remember the last time that I pleaded with somebody to be able to give to them. Can you? I can't. I can't remember the time that I said, please, please let me give to you. Let me give everything that I've got to you. So what is it that the Macedonian churches know about giving that perhaps we don't? Whereby they pleaded with Paul to say, we want to be part of this. We want to be able to not just contribute to this, but we want to be part of this work. We want to share in this work. Well, that's the first thing that we note about this passage and about giving. The first thing we note about it is that by giving, even by giving financially, we begin to share in the work. It's more than just supporting. It's more than just joining in is actually getting spiritually connected to the work. When you give to the work, 
You become part of it. Notice what he says in verse 4. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service. Sharing in this service. It's not just a participation. It's, it's more than that. It's a partaking of it. In some ways, you almost partake, spiritually connect to this work. I'm praying for it. I'm paying for it. I'm part of it. I want to be part of this story. One of the great stories of the New Testament, which we don't need to turn to because you know it so well, and it appears in all four of the, of the Gospels, is the feeding of the 5,000. We know that story really well. The interesting thing about that story is that if that little boy had decided, no, actually, I don't want to share what I've got. I want to go and sit under a tree and I want to have my lunch, thank you, just leave me alone. Then nobody would have known anything about him and he would never have been part of the story. He becomes part of the story because he shares what he's got. He shares and he enters in by sharing. He enters in to the work that Jesus is doing, to the work of the Father. And that's really essential we understand that. By sharing, by pleading with God that we might share in this service, we become part of the story and part of the work that God is doing. We enter into it in more ways than we think, more ways than just a physical offering or a physical support. It's deeper than that. And the Macedonian churches knew this. They loved Paul. The church at Philippi had a real bond with Paul. You can tell by the way they write and why he writes to them. It was as if to say, well, Paul, you know, he is the apostle to the Gentiles, don't get us wrong, but first and foremost, remember, he's our Paul, yeah? He belongs to this Philippian church. There was a connection that they had with him that was deep. And it wasn't just about a financial giving. It was about saying, Paul, we are connected to you in spirit. And therefore, what you do, we do. What you're involved in, we're involved in. And if we can't, if we can't physically get to you, then we'll get our money to you. We'll get, we'll get our prayers to you. We'll get something to you because we are part of this, just as you are part of us. So the first thing we note about that passage is it's about sharing. The second part of it is that by giving, we release grace. Notice what he says. We want you to know the grace God has given the Macedonian churches. The grace. The life that comes and flows out of those churches that demonstrates the nature of God and the nature of Jesus. And it's not always easily demonstrated in churches. Sometimes people can have quite a, a negative impression of churches. They don't seem to be always the places that give life. As one little girl once prayed, Dear God, make the bad people good and the good people nice. Mark Twain talked about people who were, quote, good in the worst sense of the word. He described Christians as people with a haunting fear that somewhere, someone was happy. And that's sad, isn't it? That isn't actually the reality of who we are 
and the reality of who God is. But there was something about the Macedonian churches that Mark Twain could never have said that of. They gave life and they gave grace because they were willing to give out and share of themselves. They pleaded with Paul for this amazing opportunity. In it, there was a joy. It was as if by sharing, it released joy in their hearts. It released a joy in their spirits. Verse 2, in the midst of the very severe trial, their overflowing joy, their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. It was, the, it was if you like, the engine behind their generosity was their joy. And giving gave them joy. It gave them a joy. It became a cycle of joy. The more they gave, the more they felt joy in their spirits. The more they experienced joy in their spirits, the more they gave. You know, many Christian churches did not respond to the famine in Judea, which is the setting for this piece of scripture. They lacked the grace which was so manifest in the church at Philippi. But as Paul says, the Macedonian churches were full of grace and they gave generously and they did so because they wanted to give grace and life into that situation. I always remember the story, Billy Cam- um, sorry, Tony Campolo, who came across a teenager in American high school called Billy. And um, he'd um, gone to school with his, with his sister and his sister developed... Um, a wasting disease where eventually she was allowed to stay in mainstream education but she was in a wheelchair. Um, but Billy had decided that he would be the one that would care for her and he would push her around in the wheelchair and that was great but he, it meant that he would have to give up certain clubs and he couldn't play soccer which is one of the things he loved doing. Um, and it cost a lot of personal sacrifices and she got worse and eventually by the time he got into fourth grade she died and something in Billy snapped and he couldn't cope anymore. He became disruptive in the lessons. He became um, sort of given cheek back to the teachers, often in detention, late to things. And he got a bit of a reputation. For having a reputation of being quite compassionate and caring, he now has a reputation for being a bit of a troublemaker in the classroom. And they have a new teacher come to the school, Mr. Smith. And he's an English teacher. And they say to him in the staff room, just look out for Billy. Because, you know, he can cause a bit of trouble and disruption in the classroom. Just be aware of him, okay? He comes, I'm afraid, with a bit of a track record and with a bit of a reputation. And after the first lesson, Mr. Smith calls Billy over at the end of the lesson. All the other children have gone. And he said, they have been told by members of staff that you're a bit of a troublemaker. And Billy says, yeah. And he says... I don't believe a word of it. That might be what you do, but that's not who you are. Who you are, who you are is the person that pushed your sister around in that wheelchair and cared for her sacrificially for those years. That's who you really are. And it turns out that the man, that Mr. Smith, was actually um, a Christian. And Billy discovered he was a Christian. And Billy was so taken by those words, by that faith that he had in him, that he went to church the following Sunday. That's where he met Tony Campello. And um, he'd gone into the kind of teenager's 
Sunday school, one of the, t- one of the teachers there had asked them, do you know anybody like Jesus? Assuming that they'd say no. And he said, and he put his hand up and he said, yeah, I know somebody just like Jesus. He said, who's that? He said, Mr. Smith. Now, it's a true story. And the reason why um, I want to share that with you is because what Mr. Smith did was to let loose grace into that child's life. He, he released grace. He released life into that person's life. And what Paul says the Macedonian churches are doing here is that they are releasing life by their giving. They're releasing grace into that situation. The interesting thing about our porch on the front of our house is that it traps all kinds of beasties. Um, I don't know if it's because we've got flowers under our window, but in the summertime we get bumblebees and other things um, that get stuck in there, and I have to kind of try and get them out. And every now and again, um, I get a scream from Sarah, Rob! like that, and I have to come downstairs, and there's a bird trapped in there. And I have to catch the bird and you, you, hold it with both hands, and you can feel its little body pulsating like that. And I come out and, on a regular basis, do a kind of dove release in my front garden. <laughs> Like that, but I don't know if you've ever held a dove or held a bird or held a pigeon before, and then it's bursting to go to be released, isn't it? It's, it's like you can feel the energy pulsating like that, and um, and then when you release it, it's quite a woof, it, off it goes. There's something about that that resonates with me, because when we when we give under the unction of the Holy Spirit. We let loose something in the spirit. We release something. We let loose his grace and his goodness and his love. It comes, it's not just about money. It's about some, something else. Something that we're connected to. Something that is deeper than this. Philippi was connected to Paul's ministry. And when they gave through Paul to the church in Jerusalem that was struggling at the time of the famine, they let loose something. They released something to him that was deeper than just the money, that was all to do with that spiritual connectedness that they had with him and that he had with them. And thirdly, It's about sowing to multiply. And that's a principle of the kingdom. And in order to understand that, we need to go to a different passage of scripture. And this is on page 980 and Matthew 13 and verse 31. Jesus is going to tell the Jews a parable about the kingdom of heaven that's going to turn their theology upside down. It's going to literally be an inside-out, upside-down moment for them, and they're not going to really grasp it. Matthew 13, verse 31, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, 
which a man took and planted in his field. And though it's the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. To the Jews, that the kingdom of God would have come humbly, almost invisibly, was inconceivable. Surely every eye would see it. Surely the Gentile nations would tremble. Surely it would come in great power and splendor and majesty as it was in the days of David. That the kingdom of God would be sown rather than arrive was again outside their thinking and expectation. Furthermore, the kingdom was sown by the hands of men was also new to them. Surely God would do this. It would be achieved by the sovereign hand of God and we simply stand back and watch in awe. Since when has the extent of the kingdom been dependent upon the choices and actions of others? Since when has the kingdom of God been dependent that somebody should sow something? Inconceivable. But what Jesus does here is he reveals a divine principle. And the divine principle is that God sows things. He wants things to grow from small seeds into mighty trees. He sows. And he gets others to sow as well. And in fact, many small things end up becoming larger things. And that's just the truth and the reality of life. A few examples. The first electric light was so dim that a candle had to be needed to find the socket. In fact, it gave off less light than a candle. Wilbur and Orville Wright's first aeroplane flight, the very first aeroplane, recorded aeroplane flight, lasted all of 12 seconds. And in fact, the first cars, the very first automobiles, could travel at an amazing four miles an hour. And they often broke down. Horse and carriages were passed and with people screaming, get a horse. Most things started off as a small seed. But they begin to grow. And this actually is the principle of God. But I want you to take one, one, other, one other thing before I finish this morning. God likes to grow things. He sows so that he can multiply. But he says, Jesus says that the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, isn't a mustard seed. He says it's a mustard seed which somebody sows. Somebody's got to sow it. Somebody's got to put that seed in and enable it to grow. Those are the principles. It's how God works. It's not going to come from the air. It comes from our will and choice to get involved. A few principles there. Giving means that we share in what God is doing. It releases grace in terms of what God is doing. And it enables us to sow into all that God is doing, that he might grow it and multiply it further. Let's pray.
Father, over these next few weeks, we're going to think and pray about our giving and feel led by your Spirit that we too might have that sense, that, that great desire in our hearts to think, Lord, how can we join in? How can we share in what you're doing? Connect us to it, we pray. Take what we have and help us to learn that, Lord, whatever we give to you might leave our pockets, but it will never leave our lives. It's part of who we are and who you are. And we pray that you would release our hearts to release our money, to release your grace into given situations. To the glory of Jesus. Amen.